Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. I noticed I was uh, standing for a while longer than everybody else. <laughs> I finally turned around and looked. Just, I'm just now getting to look at who's here today. And uh, I was standing and I'm like looking, oh, everybody else is sitting. Maybe I'm supposed to sit by now. Thank you for welcoming me. Famous uh, 19th century author and humorist Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens, was speaking about how he feels regarding reading the Bible once. And actually, when you look into it, he may not have said it, but it sounds like something exactly he would say. It's right up his alley. And he said this, Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. What troubles me are the things I can understand. And I think we have always liked Samuel Clemens so much because he wrote or said the things that we're thinking so often, uh, things that go through our mind, but we're not going to acknowledge out loud. And uh, our topic today, I think, is exactly one of those topics. How many of you were excited when you saw the topic, love your enemies? You don't have to give a show of hands. Some people are nodding and uh, that's great. Um, I've kind of thought of it as a topic a lot like giving, you know, when, when the topic's giving, you basically think you're going to be browbeat for the sermon, you know, trying to pry a little bit more money out of your wallet and uh, who gets excited about that. Um, and so now here I am reminding us we're all supposed to love our enemies, right? And sure, that's something we acknowledge out loud. Yes, love our enemies. But inside, I think we're not so sure. If you are like me at all, you think, but I don't want to love my enemies. It feels good to hate my enemies. And besides, I'm right, and they're wrong, and they kind of deserve a little hatred, right? And I'm not here to give you a daily reminder of everything that we're supposed to obey, which is not a bad thing, of course, but uh, somewhat of like Keegan was talking about, the battle isn't about our obedience. The battle is never about our obedience. Where do we fight the battle of our Christian life? Where is that always happening? Where are we contending with God? In our hearts. It's in our hearts, exactly. It's not in our actions, ultimately in our hearts, because our actions are going to follow our hearts. Obedience always follows our hearts, and God is always challenging us to look within. And so that's why over, over the decades I've been a Christian, it's been fun to realize how much good things happen out of us when we just are honest about the thoughts that we have that are going on inside of us. Well, there's one friend from our, the church I attend um, that I love it because she's a young person, but she's super straightforward about what's going inside of her. And once she just said, yeah, I was praying this morning, Jesus, I'm a real butthead today. And I was like, I love that because we don't admit that stuff very often. But when we understand, when we come to grips with how much God has done for us and how good he is for us, like we were singing this morning, we want to do 
what he is asking of us. And giving isn't hard when you are just overflowing with the recognition that God has been so generous with us. And it's the same with loving our enemies. So up front, I want to say today's takeaway is not, now we all better go out and love our enemies, okay? Our takeaway is a better understanding of ourselves and especially a better understanding of God and then letting God work with each one of us about how we might respond to that. So several months ago, about three or four months ago, I opened up the Bible. I was in one of those moods where I wasn't connected on anything, any study. And if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I've been a Christian for like mm, 35 years or something. And I'm telling you, I've never had a good quiet time go consistently. <laughs> so if you stink at quiet times, there's a lot of us who stink at quiet times. So I was in one of those stretches and I opened up the Bible, planning on reading just the random section wherever I landed and it landed, boom, right there. And it said, but I say to you, love your enemies. And I almost just jumped right off it because the first thing that went through my head was, yeah, 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 love your enemies. Got it. Yep, right? Got it. But a little voice said, no, 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 read it again. Take a look at that again. And there's a whole passage there. There's like three paragraphs in our translations. And I read it, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And I said to myself, my goodness, how much have I ever really applied this aggressively in my life? How much have I really tried to love my enemies? Honestly, how much do I even think about it? The passage goes on a bit, and Jesus clarifies what he's getting at uh, pretty clearly. It's not real complicated stuff. It's like what Mark Twain said, you know. I can understand this. It says, love your enemies. <laughs> it says some other challenging things. And I was struck as I looked at it that day at the magnitude of what Jesus asks of us. And the thing that kept coming back to me was, wow, this is really hard stuff. This is not easy stuff. And I've been thinking about that ever since. So we're going to read the passage together. And while we do, I want you to ask, ask yourself honestly, do I, to what extent do I even take this seriously in my life? And more particularly, do I have any inclination to? And who in my life might be my enemy that, I might be, that God might be nudging me toward doing something about? The passage we're looking at is from Luke 6, verses 27 to 36, and there's a parallel passage in Matthew 5, but I landed in Luke originally, and I like some of the nuances he brings out, so we'll stay with Luke. But let's walk through it and make a few observations, and here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and plus a whole large group of many others. And in the middle of things, Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do good to those who hate you. Who's ready to run out and do good to those who hate you? 
<laughs> it is not my first inclination. Nobody likes to hear that. When someone hates us, my first inclination is, great, I'm going to hate you back. Good. I know what side of the, uh, side of the aisle you're on. And this, this idea of blessing those who curse us and praying for those who abuse us really goes against the grain of that, that gut feeling that we have. And uh, my, the most fascinating thing about this first section that I love is the way that uh, our culture, I think, has missed the boat completely on turning the other cheek. At least in my perspective, growing up, I thought turning the other cheek meant if somebody smacked me, I turned the other cheek because I walked away. I wouldn't respond. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, somebody smacks you on the cheek, say, go ahead and smack me on the other one. And guess what? I'll still love you. Yeah. Who acts like that? Let's read on. Next passage. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. When I lend to somebody, you're darn right I'm expecting to get it back. That's why it's a loan, right? And Jesus is saying, when you lend to somebody, don't expect anything back. Okay, time out here, you know. I step away from this, and I thought, that's what doing the right thing is. And as Christians, we're usually concerned about what's the right thing to do. And Jesus is saying, I'm not so worried much about your actions right now. I'm saying, what is the condition of your heart toward your, other, your fellow man, toward your enemies? And then Jesus goes on, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful do you remember what jesus said to uh the guy uh, when jesus was talking about internal uh, e- inheriting eternal life and jesus the guy said what do you got to do to do that and jesus said well you have to love god with all your heart and you have to love your neighbor and the guy said okay well who's my neighbor basically he wanted to know who his neighbor was he's like can we define our terms a little bit here so i can know who i need to love and who i don't need to love it's basically what he was getting at And Jesus, of course, at that time replied with the Good Samaritan parable, basically saying, your neighbor is anybody I bring across your path. Well, I feel like we're the same way here with the whole topic of enemies. When I read love your enemy, I go, okay, well, time out. Who's my enemy? Who's my enemy here? Who do I have to love? And who can I get away with not loving? Who are our enemies anyway? Who's Jesus talking about here? For me, that's the first question that comes up. Who are my enemies? And in our normal day-to-day usage of the word enemy, I don't even find that we use that term anymore. I don't know about you guys. But uh, we might joke about our sports rivals being our enemies and their fans being our, uh, our enemies and something similar. But what about serious enemies? Who are our enemies? 
we used to use the word uh, much more frequently in the past, like in times of World War II, when our enemies are, okay, they're on the other side and we're in the midst of a big war trying to, trying to defeat our enemies. Uh, and maybe now we might call the Russians our enemies, uh, you know, or maybe the Chinese. I don't know. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying, who do we call our enemies anymore? So I did a little informal survey with people asking, who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? And I got two basic responses, which was interesting. It was either A, somebody on the other side of the aisle politically or culturally. It was like the people I disagree with. That's the people I have a different stand with. Or, I don't know, I don't have any enemies. Which I don't think is what Jesus is getting at, <laughs> that we don't have any enemies. The Greek word for enemies comes from this root to hate, and it is basically denoting someone who is hateful to you for some reason. Someone in, uh, that is you are disliking or they dislike you uh, passively. It's just kind of like, hey... We dislike each other. We just don't connect. Um, or they could be actively hostile to you like an adversary or foe. But the point is, your enemy doesn't have to be someone you're in conflict with. It can be someone that you're just simply in sharp disagreement with. Or maybe even not that sharp disagreement with someone who's positioned in opposition to you. Now, if we consider that definition of the word enemy, can anyone here think of a culture anywhere in the world today where people are working and living side by side with a whole lot of quote-unquote enemies? Can you think of a place where half the culture thinks the other half of the culture are a bunch of idiots? Maybe America. <laughs> Have you ever gone out on social media and I'm not one who's like, I poke around, but I don't, I don't hang out there too much because it's just, frankly, so uh, hard on me with the anger and the vitriol. Left versus right, conservative versus liberal, per, per liberal progressive versus right, or in Christians and atheists, pro-choice, pro-life. And if you spend any time at all, you know exactly what I am talking about. Now, I don't care whether you're left or right or where you are in any spectrum with that. But when I look at our angry culture, when I look at how divided we are, I cannot help but wonder what would happen in our country today if people would actively and intentionally choose to love those that they violently disagree with. What if everyone tried to apply Jesus's standard here, even just a little bit? I wonder if there's any commandment of Jesus that we need today more desperately than simply loving our enemies. When we first moved into the area uh, several decades ago, I worked in this small office and we had this new lady join the company and I was a young adult, she was a little bit older and boy, bam, <laughs> we did not get along at all. We were total opposites in all, in pretty much every way. And that's the summer I became a Christian in earnest, and I felt like everything she was saying to me was super condescending, 
because she was a more experienced adult than I was. And she said, oh, I was a Christian once when I was younger. I know what it's like. I rode the bus. I handed out the tracks. You'll grow out of it. And it felt like she was patting me on the head. And as a 20-something-year-old adult, I just seized. I hated that. And uh, I hated her. And it was just hard to work in the same office. And I don't know if you've ever experienced where you're connecting with somebody who you just actively dislike in a strong way. And you're trying to deal with it because it's coloring everything that has to do with this person. And I had to work with her every day, 40 hours a week. And what really stunk was that I knew God didn't want me to hate her. (laughs) I thought about this stupid verse that said, love your enemies. And I was like, so it went on for a couple of weeks where I just was just fighting it and fighting it. And I finally said, I've just got to try to love this person who I can't love and it's impossible. There's no way to do this. How do I, how the heck do I do that? I eventually could come up with nothing better than to simply be kind to this woman and just make up my mind that I will not enter into any conflict whatsoever. So I started greeting her warmly, and I asked her questions about her life, and I said nice things about her with the inner hearing, and I tried to find the good things about her that I honestly did like, and I put up with her condescension. And over the course of a couple weeks, a really strange thing happened. My hatred just went away. She didn't annoy me anymore. And I actually started to genuinely care about this woman. And then she started warming up. And then I learned about the divorce that she'd gone through. And my parents are divorced. And I know what it was like for hearing my mom talk about what it felt like to be, you know, left, abandoned. And then I learned about more of her life's challenges. And she's raising her children as a single parent. I ended up, went over and helped her move once, and I could see how she lived, and it wasn't easy. And after a while, it just suddenly dawned on me. It was like, I was kind of amazed that God had created this loving friendship out of conflict by simple act of just putting aside hatred. And to this day, we're still friends, and I love her. Jesus challenges us to choose love. To choose love, especially when we're not thinking about it. I pray if there's nothing else that comes out of our message today, if the Holy Spirit prompts you once in one of your relationships to say, poor kindness here. If this person's an enemy of yours in any way, can you love them in any way? We can choose to dislike and we can choose to stay there. And it feels good for a while, doesn't it? feels like we're right and they're wrong, but it's death to stay there. It's bitterness and death, and it's not God's way. God's way is the way of mercy, and it's that mercy and that love that brings transformation and that God says is in our power to make a difference in our relationships and in the world. So if you want to see transformation in your difficult relationships, take Jesus seriously. Love your enemy. Or do you want to be redirected or helped in making other people's lives go a different direction, live in powerful ways? I remember reading the testimony of a Christian in South America once. It's a man who owned a lumber yard. 
And one night he heard these thieves rustling around out in his lumber yard. And so he snuck out to see what was going on. And he found these two guys quietly loading up lumber into a truck that they were stealing. So without saying a word, he quietly just joined them and started, kept loading wood with them. And he's loading up the truck with them. And they're like, oh, okay, I don't know who this guy is, but sweet, we'll get out of here faster. So they finish loading up the truck and close it. And they look at the guy and they say, thanks, man. Who are you? <laughs> and he goes, I'm the owner of the lumber yard. And they went, oh, no. And he said, it's okay. I'll give you the lumber if you'll just listen to me for five minutes. Give me five minutes. And he shared the gospel with him. And one of the men started crying right there. And that man eventually became a Christian and became a pastor in that city. All from one man's willingness to just let go, to lend and expect nothing in return. That story has always stuck with me for a long time. But that's the kind of transformation that God wants to do in us and through us in touching other people's lives. And all he asks for us is to fight that instinct of our broken hearts that want to hate, that want to go out and say, well, oh yeah. <laughs> and we all feel it. This is my actual favorite part of the passage. Could you go back to the, uh, the last slide of the, the third slide? where it says there, love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And the first time I read that sentence again a couple months ago, I said to myself, yeah, God is, isn't he? He is kind to those people, isn't he? To the ungrateful, to the evil. And then a little voice inside me said, uh, reminder, you're ungrateful <laughs> and you're evil. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> thanks Lord. That's me. I'm ungrateful. I'm broken and inclined to evil. We all are. And yet, God is still kind to us. And that's the simple message out of this passage, if anything, is he's kind to us even though we don't deserve it. God has extended to me and to all of us the incredible grace that we talk about constantly as Christians and we constantly let the seriousness of and the gravity of the gospel whoosh away. And we have to be reminded over and over and over again that God has offered us grace and mercy by sending his son to die a horrible death in payment for our sins. In very real ways, we are and have been God's enemies. We stood against him since the Garden of Eden. We said, my way, God, not your way. And every one of us knows this. Who, likes to, who here likes to be told what to do? None of us. And yet, God chose to love his enemies. And he asked us to do the same. I'm going to close with one more testimony. And as I do, I want to remind you, uh, make yourself open to God and just see what he prompts you with. Today, rest of the week, how can I respond to this, Lord? 
show me something about the way I see the world and my enemies and how I could react. What ways could I choose to love instead of hate? I want to share a brief uh, writing from Corey Tenboom. Um, if those of you who are older remember her, those of you younger may or may not have heard of her. She has a very famous book called The Hiding Place. Um, Corey was from Holland in Europe in the early 1900s. And she went through terrible trials uh, in concentration camps during World War II where she saw many of her family die. And after the war, God led her to this absolutely fabulous ministry of reconciliation and forgiveness and healing. And so she just went all over Europe just preaching a message of love and forgiveness and healing. And she writes, It was in a church of, in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. And maybe that's because the sea is never far away from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where the forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence collected their wraps, and left the room all in silence. And that's when I saw him. He was working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next I saw the blue uniform and the visored cap with skull and crossbones on it. And it all came back in a rush. The huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation in Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was standing in front of me. And his hand was thrust out, and he said, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among all those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And I remember that leather crop swinging from his belt. This was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he went on. I was a guard in there. He did not seem to remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I couldn't. Betsy died in that place. 
Could he erase her slow, terrible death just by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it was like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. The message of God, that God forgives, has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew that only as a commandment of God. But I also knew it as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their enemies were also able to return to the world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their scars were. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joint hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being and brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Such a wonderful example. May God give each of us the grace to do the same in our own lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us here this morning. Thank you for touching our hearts. Thank you for planting seeds. Holy Spirit, we trust that you will continue to bubble this scripture up to us and teach us one little way or more, how we could be more for you in this world that seems to want to hate so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we close, I have a special message from Daryl that he wanted me to pass along. He wishes he could be here, and he misses being with you this Sunday. He wanted you to know, as we dismiss, may you know and have full confidence in that God is with you, watching every step that you take, guiding you by his spirit, giving you exactly what you need to get through each day. And if there are agonies experienced this week, may you be of full confidence that the trials are, you are facing are helping us and helping you to gain an eternal glory that is so much greater than the trouble you're facing today. So do not give up. Take your cues about who you are and what you are worth from God. Amen? Amen. We are dismissed. Go and Thank you for listening. 
you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Thank you.